Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Today we're looking at the power and invention of theater, forum theater, and how it might inform radical histories of oppressed groups like the homeless. To mark World Homelessness Day on the 10th of October, History Workshop's Peter Jones spoke with Adrian Jackson, MBE, founder and joint CEO of Cardboard Citizens, a theater company that works with homeless people. In 2021, Adrian stepped down as artistic director of Cardboard Citizens after three decades of important work creating outstanding theatrical productions, putting stories of people with lived experience of homelessness firmly in the spotlight. This interview reflects on his journey, ranging widely across topics, including the power of Augusto Ball's theater of the oppressed methodology to activate social change, the politics of ending homelessness during the COVID-19 pandemic, and forum theater as a tool of the left, an anti-dogmatic means of accommodating the voices of those subjected to the rolling historical crisis of homelessness. Okay, welcome, Adrian, and thanks so much for agreeing to chat today. Thank you, my pleasure. Okay, in July um, 2021, this year, you stepped down from your role as Artistic Director and Joint CEO of Cardboard Citizens. So I thought this seems like an apt moment to congratulate you on 30 years of important work at the company, bringing the stories of people with lived experience of homelessness firmly into the spotlight. Uh, I want to reflect on this journey um, uh, which you vividly described elsewhere as follows. Year on year, we have gone forward, operated part-time, then full-time, grown, shrunk, grown again, lost people, found people, added functions, tried things, come close to extinction, clawed our way back, got stronger, moving several times from an office under a hostel until we arrived at the glorious premises we currently lease complete with our own workshop space. So I wondered if you could begin by um, telling us a little bit about Cardboard Citizens. Where did the idea come from? Um, how did you come to the project in the first place? And maybe you could highlight a couple of kind of formative, any formative moments which were sort of made Cardboard Citizens what it is today. Okay, I'll try. As you know, I had um, an important encounter with the Brazilian theatre maker and um, dramaturg and teacher and activist Augusto Boal in 1990. I had met him on a couple of occasions before, and on this occasion he came at my invitation to the company I was associate director of at that time, the London Bubble, to lead a workshop, a teaching workshop of a week, teaching forum theatre. And with great uh, prescience, my colleague at the time, Jonathan Petherbridge, my artistic director at the time, suggested that we put in place a project 
to follow virtually directly after his visit uh, so that we would lose no momentum, no energy. Sometimes you do training things, don't you? And if you don't put it into action very quickly, it just sort of disappears into the ether. So it was great that my colleague suggested that we did that. Um, so that by the time Augusto arrived, we already had in place a notional project to follow his visit. And that notional project was we were thinking, well, who are the oppressed? Uh, Augusto Boal invented this thing called the theater of the oppressed. Who are the particular oppressed that we might want to work with at this particular moment? And yeah, it's 1990. I think homelessness was in everyone's faces, really. And it was a certain amount in the news. And I had one member of my team who knew a bit about it. Um, so from a long list of, I think, about 20 possible constituencies we might work with, we arrived at homeless people. And the important thing to stress is it wasn't meant to be my life. It was meant to be a project. OK, it was actually meant to be about three months, not 30 years. You know, life happens to one. One doesn't plan these things. But so we, we really wanted to test Augusto Boal's forum, participatory theatre methodology, forum theatre. And so after Augusto left, very quickly we moved to recruit the first group of homeless people. And we assembled an amazing group of people, very varied, actually, very diverse. And we agreed with them that we were going to work for, I think, uh, three weeks rehearsal and then two weeks touring. And in that time, we would make some very small pieces of theatre about people's lives. So we did that. And to our amazement, it was a great success. It was a success by any measure um, in that it was incredibly interesting um, to be to to be privy to lives um, one didn't know about to hear stories um, one hadn't heard it appeared to be satisfying to the participants it appeared to give the participants an outlet which they enjoyed to speak to tell these stories to others uh, to others who'd been in the same boat, but also to wider audiences. And I suppose finally, within the homeless sector, by which I mean the day centres and hostels and charities and so on, um, it was welcomed as a forum for important conversations and a way of eliciting a dialogue with homeless people, which other methodologies hadn't really achieved. So, you know, everything, all the signs were auspicious. And that was why after we'd done that first project, we sat down with the group and we said, well, let's make a three-year development plan, the end of which it was my intention firmly to be out of there. It was three months, now it's three years. After that period, the idea was that every function in the company would be, a, would be discharged by a person with what is now called lived experience of homelessness. 
in the end it turned out to be a little bit more complicated than that and it took rather longer <laughs> um and that said that's another story so that was the that was the beginning of it really and um you asked about particular formative moments there was a moment in an archway under waterloo by what was called then the bullring where there was a homeless community of about 250 people living where we performed our shows and it was just a magical moment, really. I mean, the, the people living in the archway had cleared it out. They'd used pallets to create ranked seating. There was a brazier burning in one corner. There were about 40 people. There were about 20 dogs. Um, there was a convivial atmosphere, to say the least. Many people had imbibed various things before the theatre, as one does. Um, and it was just an incredible celebration of the power of a and in, in invention of a group of people when given the opportunity. So that 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 stays very firmly in my mind uh, as a really early. Wow, this is really something. This is really something unusual. We can do something with this, you know. And that's where the name of the company originated, right? With with those bullring with the cardboard uh, city in the bullring. Is that right? A member of the group, when we had that meeting about uh, let's go forward, uh, we said, well, we should have a name and a member of the group, Gary Gallard. He brilliantly came up with the name Cardboard Citizens and and I've never regretted that um, name. Some people think up the name of their theatre company in a pub and they end up being called Adnam's Ales or whatever and it's pretty meaningless after a few years but I love the ambiguities and the potentialities of those words cardboard citizens. Powerful I think. It was a, it's a fascinating time the sort of 80s and 90s. I think elsewhere you you say that cardboard citizens emerged at a moment this tail end of a turbulent period of British history. And I wanted to ask about the role that you think workshop theatre and the dramatic arts plays in history making, in the making of radical history and in shifting people's conventional wisdom, in shifting people's preconceptions. Um, I know that plays like bystanders for instance in 2019 was responding to the kind of invisibility of um, homeless people within um, national statistics and um, responding to the bureau of investigative journalism's report about homeless deaths and i think that bystanders is, is described as sort of a collection of homeless histories so yeah i wanted to just invite you to think a little bit about that and i wondered if um you, you thought of theatre as a kind of history-making exercise? It's a very interesting question. I mean, obviously theatre is a storytelling exercise and we understand the connection between the words history and, and story. Whose history is being told? Who is telling it? How are they telling it? I mean, there's big history and there's little history, isn't there? And 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 I was brought up in a generation really which had a better understanding of of big history, which tended to be great people, usually men, and great nations and all of that. And in the past, perhaps twenty years, particularly, and perhaps the last ten years, especially, you know, there's a broader understanding that there are histories, not history and um so yes we we've played our part 
we have told some of those stories. Sometimes we could point to large effects, um, larger effects in society. Uh, another piece we did, Kathy, um, which was a revisitation of Ken Loach's seminal film, Kathy Come Home, 50 years after his film, but uh, a new play exploring similar notions and wondering if a Kathy's life would pan out like it did then, now. Well, that play toured very widely up and down the country. It became part of a campaign, part of a wider campaign, called Homes for Kathy, and that in turn became part of a wider campaign to create something called the Homelessness Reduction Act, which was passed in uh, 2017, I think. Uh, and as part of that, you know, ultimately we performed that play or a slightly truncated version of it at the first, on the evening of the first reading of the Homelessness Reduction Act at the House of Lords. So it was quite pleasing, really, to see that the voices of our storytellers were being heard at that legislative level. And it was appreciated, I suppose, that theatre can tell stories with a power that perhaps other ways of communicating with people can't always achieve and 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 that was that was that was pleasing so in that sense yes i believe we've 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 played our part a lot of the time of course we're in a much smaller arena sharing stories with smaller groups of people you know every night there's an audience and and that's you know that's not a big scale broadcast in the way that um, things can be now um, but but theatre is quite a homespun thing in a kind of way, and it 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 operates very successfully at a a really local level, if you like. And does that? Uh, I I don't know if I've answered your question. Yeah, I mean, I think you know that what you're saying is partly that those kind of big histories can be can impinge on those small moments in the workshops as much as anything else, and. Yeah, I mean, actually, actually, Peter, we we've also had a fascination through the time of cardboard citizens, through my tenure of uh, cardboard citizens, um, with the the moments when big history and little history interact, and that's been a fascination of mine, really. Um, when, for instance, uh, we performed a play called Mincemeat, which is about one of the two, perhaps, World War winning deceptions of World War II, where um, um, the Allies uh, persuaded the Germans to believe that they were going to land in Sicily in 1943, uh, land in Sardinia rather than in Sicily when they, um, well, at the centre of that um, was a homeless man, uh, a Welshman uh, called Lindur Michael, whose body was used as the vehicle for this incredible deception, which really did work. And, and though, of course, he was an unknowing, world-changing man, because up to the point that he died, he was a nobody, a complete nobody. He was ignored by everyone. But suddenly, after his death, his body was used and dropped off the coast of Spain to stand in for a theoretically drowned pilot 
conveying a, an important message. Uh, so I'm kind of fascinated by when we are important and when we are completely unimportant. And so we've, we've done a number of those stories where we look at the, the role of the little guy in big history, as it were. Sometimes those little stories can turn out to be more momentous than than you might think, right? Yeah, thanks for that. So, yeah, what if we could we could talk a little bit about the politics of homelessness? The ending rough sleeping has become a pledge of major political parties, the Labour's manifesto, and more recently, uh, Andy Burnham's political strategy has been targeted at tackling the root causes of homelessness. Um, is a core part of his goals um, for Greater Manchester City Region. And the Conservative-led government have also claimed to be to be putting tackling homelessness and rough sleeping firmly at the heart of their agenda. And I wondered if you see any evidence that that central, mayoral, local governments are taking the goal of ending homelessness more seriously in recent times. Have things shifted and has that has that sense of and more of a concern, more of a focused concern on homelessness become part of your work at Cardboard Citizens? Have you noticed any shift in people's awareness or have things sort of always been the same in a kind of rolling tragedy? Have you, have, are you hopeful and optimistic about the prospects for ending homelessness? Since we started, for sure, attitudes more broadly, I think, in society have changed. When we started, you know, there were still massive hostels, warehousing homeless people. Homeless people were really essentially a sort of sub-being. Sub and the idea that people had lives and that they might have perfectly cogent reasons why they've ended up like this, which was nothing to do with a fault of theirs. That's slightly more, I mean, maybe I'm being over-optimistic here, but that notion of the deserving and undeserving poor, I believe, is slightly less prevalent than it was. Um, the dignity accorded to homeless people in hostels and day centres, I think, has gone up a lot. And the understanding that, you know, they're simply people like all of us. So that attitudinal change, I think, is clear. And as, I, as I've said, I think it's manifested in the, the change of accommodation. Um, and that really probably dates from, you know, the whole invention of the term social inclusion and, and probably you know, even the even the major government and certainly the Blair government and successive governments, you know, have come around to some of those notions. But, and of course, it's going to be a big but, <laughs> um, do I believe there has been a sea change in the way governments regard this issue? No, I'm afraid I don't. I think it remains comparatively peripheral for government it's an irritation. It's um, a disfigurement of our streets as far as they're concerned. I mean, of course, street homeless people are only the absolute tiny tip of the iceberg of homelessness. The vast majority of homeless people are invisible, either sofa surfing or living in hostels or whatever. But if I, if I wanted to harbour a smidgen of hope, 
it might be two things. I mean, Andy Burnham is an outlier, but God, he's a powerful outlier. And I've met Andy on a few occasions. We've performed uh, once at the Labour Party conference. We've performed. He's spoken at events we've done where we had a long residence in Manchester. And he walks the talk and he really does believe all that. And he's really doing a lot. Um, so if his model in Manchester could be copied more widely elsewhere, and I think it's an attractive model, that might trigger some change. The other important event recently was that it was proven in one fell swoop that if a government wished to take people off the streets in a matter of months, they could do. And this has just happened with the everyone in policy, which came as a result of COVID. And if COVID has had any beneficial effects on the universe, uh, one of them might be that it has proven that where there is a political will, there obviously is a way. And I think that evidence that it can be done balanced against the, you know, the standard biblical notion of the poor are always with us and so on and so on, will have some effect. And even perhaps uh, this government will have noted um, that ultimately by resettling people in a civilized way, in civilized places, living in reasonable hotels, that actually there's been a huge gain. Um, so many people have found uh, security in that period and therefore have been able to get their lives back on track. Uh, and obviously, as far as government is concerned, an economic gain because those same people aren't the drain on the system, the care system, the prison system, all of that, the health system. So, you know, economics obviously speaks uh, volumes to any government. So those would be my, my smidgens of hope. But uh, I'm afraid having been around quite a long time, uh, you know, you see things come and go and, and I'm not, I'd, I'm afraid I don't tend to be a glass half full person yeah i think with the with that funding do you think there's a prospect that that might be extended because you've got the re the lifting of the ban on evictions has recently happened hasn't it and and you've got the phasing out of the fur furlough scheme approaching very soon so there's a i think there's some conversations about this kind of prospect of a cliff edge do you think they might well, I'm, I'm not up with the latest, but I believe there is talk of extending it. I believe it already had some minor extension. I think a lot is, is, is being placed on local authorities to decide what they wish to do. So, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it also combined with the fact that presumably hotels had no guests anyway. And so it was, it was, uh, uh, who's, what's not to like in a system that funnels money to uh, hotels and uses the empty space and so on and so on. Um, and of course, those conditions perhaps won't continue to obtain once COVID recedes a little bit and tourism is back. You know? Right, right. Yeah. Um, maybe we can sort of switch back to cardboard citizens again. Um, so a recent survey suggested that 85% of the homeless mem your homeless members felt that your workshops had a positive impact on their well-being and I wondered if there are any particular moments of possibility of promise and change that stood out to you from Cardboard Citizens 
workshops, any particular memories of hope and change in those settings? I mean, of course, there, there, there are masses um, and I can just give you one. But what I really want to say is that I've always believed people speak very glibly about change as if it's uh, as always a sort of epiphanic moment and and uh, you know it's a p pivots on a moment and my own experience in my own life and other people's lives i think is that change is much more gradual and it's hard one and it's difficult to sustain um, and we know how challenging things like addictions are so you know the sad thing is people can become homeless in a matter of weeks and they can even become street homeless in a matter of weeks uh, and there is some terrible research shelter or crisis or someone did years ago whereby discovering that if people street slept for like a month that had then become a way of life and it literally took years for people to find their way out of that so you know, homelessness becomes a sort of state of mind uh, when you are treated as abysmally as the homeless people are. Uh, and to rebuild that state of mind takes a lot of time. That's where the arts can come in, because we know the arts in so many ways contribute to our health, the health of the nation, our individual health, the act of telling a story, the act of participating in the story, the act of acting, taking action, the act of being in a room with a group of people with a shared purpose, the experience of being in a place where you are not judged, where your story is believed rather than disbelieved, where your story is listened to. All these comparatively small things add up to a powerful environment for change and uh, and that is why I think um, I mean um, that's kind of you to cite that um, statistic but I think that is why I actually believe that I don't find it difficult to believe at all people take so many different things from our workshops sometimes it's the, the simple act of doing something positive and creative for a couple of hours but sometimes it's discovering friendships sometimes it's discovering a lot of stuff about yourself through the mirror of other people there are so many ways that these impacts are felt but let me give you one quick dazzling sort of more instant story uh, because they are pleasurable and they do happen from time to time i remember very well attending a, a forum theater production actually after a meeting of my board we were celebrating somebody leaving the board I mean not commemorating whatever and we went to see a show and my colleague um, good friend Terry O'Leary was doing the facilitator function the joker function it was in a women's hostel in the East End and there was a very rowdy woman at the back and who was very under the influence and Terry we're, we're used to such people and Terry dealt with it uh, very well and ultimately invited her on the stage to suggest her intervention. What would she do in this situation, which is the question that we ask in Forum Theatre. Take the place of the protagonist and try your idea. We won't necessarily make it work. It's not a wish fulfillment, but we'll try it out. 
So this woman staggers onto the stage and, and she says, well, what I'd do is I'd go to an AA meeting. So we instantly create an AA meeting and she comes in and she says, oh, I'm an alcoholic and this is my life and so on. Um, and we enjoy it. And it's a great, it's a great, it's a great, you know, it's a nice wee piece of theatre. And then we applaud and she staggers off back to the um, back of the audience. I met that woman, I think, about six months later. The next day after that night, she had gone to her first AA meeting. The act of rehearsing that action on stage had literally empowered her. She saw, okay, I can do this. And she'd been applauded. You know? And I survived it. And she had not taken a drink since that night. And that's just amazing. It's amazing. But it's a very graphic, I mean, it's a sensational illustration of the, the power of the methodology, really. And, of course, it was very, very pleasing. That's an amazing story. Forum, forum theatre techniques, uh, you've been speaking about um, just then. They're key to the way cardboard citizens has worked with those who are subjected to this kind of rolling historical crisis of homelessness that we've been talking about. What is it that makes Forum Theatre such an effective way of working with socially excluded and disempowered people, those people who are subject to this to this crisis? What what is it that makes it um, an effective tool in 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 that forum? There's probably about three elements. One is that your voice is heard. And so often homeless people have the experience of not being heard or being silenced uh, or being disbelieved. You know, asylum seeker stories are so much about you have to tell a convincing story, otherwise you won't achieve asylum. And then there's something really poisonous about all that. So something about your voice being heard, people's voices being heard, um, quite a lot about the fact that it is basically peer to peer and it isn't some outside well-meaning or not well-meaning authority passing judgment on you. The only, the only conversation afterwards is a conversation with the audience who will in most cases be people who've had some shared experience. I mean I'm talking about the vast bulk of our work which has always taken place in hostels. As you know we've been in theatres also for the past several years but even in theatres we will try to ensure that a decent proportion of our audience is people who have been homeless, who have lived experience of homelessness. But so a lack of judgment by a sort of outside authority. And then I think finally, and perhaps most importantly, it's fun. It's fun. It's not, when, when I describe, when you describe it to people, sometimes people sort of, it comes out sounding like a, a well-meaning penance one has to do, a terribly worthy activity. But actually, it's incredibly playful. That's the point. It's not, it's talking about serious things in a playful way. There's a huge amount of laughter is released in, in a room during forum when it gets going. And 
that's that's a great way to talk about difficult stuff, really. So I think those are those are probably the uh, the, the the key elements in terms of change. You know, it it can be as described a catalyst. Real embedded change is going to occur usually with some kind of follow up or with people. That's why we developed a membership scheme. That's why people come to us regularly. Um, we have other things we offer by way of supporting people. And the theatrical moment has actually been simply the catalyst to trigger people to come and see us, really. Um, and then we can support people making changes in their lives in, in different ways. I've been reading the games for actors and non-actors book and it was yeah finding it really fascinating and kind of someone coming from an academic mindset i found it really kind of resisted my capacity to theorize you know theorize it was kind of these i just found the kind of games and interactions that were described so interesting and so kind of neutral they create these kind of very neutral surfaces and they allow voices to sometimes not voices right because you can't speak that's part of the point of the thing isn't it to arrange themselves in a kind of in a kind of equal forum I suppose yeah and I was just interested in the way it kind of resisted my meaning making you know you know I think that's you really put your finger on something incredibly important there I mean we've been talking about forum theater which is after all just one of the modalities of the theater of the oppressed there are also this huge range of games and exercises which you've been reading about by the way there's a new edition uh, of that about to come out later this year uh, with a few extra essays which uh, we managed to uncover of Augusto's early work in it but um the neutrality, I think that's a very good word, even though Augusto was, of course, a person of the left. And this work is a work of the left, theatre of the oppressed. Who else is it going to um, belong to? The method comes as a reaction against a more didactic approach to proselytizing the values of socialism, if you like, um, because, you know, Augusta sort of invents it or discovers it when finding that it was far more interesting to talk with an audience than to talk to or at an audience. And so his previous mode had been agitprop theatre, agitational propaganda, standard tool of um, um, Marxist repertoire. And he had discovered an inadequacy in that, in that it simply wasn't getting through. And in some cases was possibly hardening a resistance rather than evangelizing or converting. And he realized because it was selling something too hard. The great joy of T.O., Theatre of the Oppressed, is that it's a discovery process and you discover at your own pace. Um, and the wonderful optimism, I think, uh, which underlies the sort of socialist values of it is the belief that actually the values of socialism, uh, basically uh, a humanistic view of the world, are so essentially 
human and logical that if you let people find their way there, they will find their way there. And they'll likely find their way there much more powerfully than if you tell them what to think or try to tell people what to think. Um, and so we, we, from the very beginning, were studiously neutral, Peter, to the extent of really trying people never to know what we thought about anything. Uh, uh, to elicit this conversation. Okay, thank you. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, it does. It does make sense. Certainly. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting to think about the way that the, it. You know, I guess if you're experiencing these kind of complex needs and you're trying to sort of break habits of mind, the way you do it is not to have someone coming along and saying, "The way you're going to sort yourself out is to do what I say." It's got to come from within hasn't it i suppose absolutely like any change i mean we're in this terribly we're we're suddenly we've arrived haven't we at an incredibly polar moment in history we thought we were polar when the cold war was going on but now we've discovered what real polarity is like where we have so many debates where you are this or you are that and the attempt to convert is almost always doomed to failure. So you speak, I was speaking to a woman yesterday who I'm working with at the moment who you know, transpired she hasn't had the vaccination. And, and we know that a hardcore kind of, well, you must have it, you should have it, everybody should have it, will just have the opposite effect. And these are difficult conversations which need to be had um, um, frustratingly at people's own pace. I mean, the other thing was the, you know, there was, I suppose, there's a there's a section of the left when I was growing up, which believed that all all the oppressed were naturally united um, uh, and and uh, would congregate together and and bring about the revolution. But most of us know that actually, you know, oppressed people can be as as bigoted and 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 conservative as anybody else. Uh, often they found they found um, victims or repositories or targets for the, um, to blame for their own difficult situations. Um, and that can come out in all sorts of unpleasant ways. So we discovered that pretty early on, you know, going around hostels and day centers and letting people have some conversations, um, you know, including about things like race and things and, and, and recognizing that they, you know, they're sometimes difficult things to listen to, but letting a room find its own way a little bit forward and hoping that one leaves it microscopically better than sometimes terribly difficult to button one's lip. But, you know, that's the way it is. Um, mm, so I which know, is why we, we really didn't preach. We really didn't preach. The work tells its own story. I, I mean, I always say when teaching people about the facilitation function, you know, uh, you 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 can take a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, and that is a simple fact. Uh, <laughs> so, I'm now imagining sort of <coughs> vaccine workshops being run through this uh, methodology, and <laughs> how successful they might be. We should try it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that anybody has really done that important dialogue. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So. Maybe we could sort of start rounding to a conclusion at this point. So you talked a bit about the government's everyone in policy, and we, we've sort of addressed that a little bit already. But I wondered 
if your sense of cardboard citizens mission shifted at all during the pandemic and what do you think will be the tests and trials that the company will face in years to come um, under new directorship and as it seeks to realize its mission of making theatre with homeless people that activates social change some of the that that is that word change again but yeah do you have any thoughts about what particular challenges are going to be or new challenges are going to arise or do you think that the battle will stay relatively consistent and the challenges will look be a similar sort of shape and tenor well i mean for one thing obviously it's not for it's not my job <laughs> anymore um and i it will be up to the new artistic director and the team he builds around him is a very interesting man called Chris Sonics, who comes from a, um, um, a really um, strong theatre background. It'll be up to him and the team to decide where it goes. I think there will remain some perennial challenges. One of those is the interface of the arts with the social sector because they live differently and they have different beliefs and habits. And for instance, recently we've had some quite involved discussions following a, following a, a residency in Coventry where we just completed a, a, um, a theatre making residency with local homeless people and where we are doing later a, a show which I can tell you about at the end. And some of those discussions were about trauma and there is a whole area of work called trauma-informed TI, trauma-informed, which of course we believe that we understand the nature of trauma at cardboard system pretty well and its scarring effect and the dangers of reigniting it and the reliving trauma and re-traumatizing it's called in the jargon. But at the same time, our methodology does depend on looking at those difficult stories, not coercing anybody to look at them, but the belief that the telling of those stories is, is actually cathartic to an extent um, and is certainly productive in the longer run and is vital. And so that will, I think, continue to be an area of challenge in that we aren't as afraid to look at trauma and moments of serious oppression um, as perhaps others are, because to be honest, it's really our meat and drink. Um, it's where we start from. So if there's a social sector which is really frightened of going there because they're frightened of, you know, phrases tend to be used like Pandora's box and cans of worms, all phrases about opening things, interestingly, you, because there's a belief that kind of you need to be qualified in a particular way to deal with that. Well, I suppose our argument would be we are qualified in a particular way. We're not therapists, um, but theatre can be therapeutic. Um, and we're experiencing that. So there are there are various interfaces with that world, which I think are challenging. One of the earliest ones we encountered of that was, you know, all these notions of boundaries and so on. 
there tend to be in that world divisions between people who are called clients and people who are called workers or staff or whatever. And of course, there are there need to be safe boundaries between people to an extent. But the danger of that is an othering. And that is an ever present danger. Um, because in the end, you know, when we started gloriously, blissfully, we were just all blundering along together, making mistakes together, mixing our lives together, uh, drinking, smoking, doing all sorts of things together. Um, we weren't, there was not a separation. Now, of course, things are a little bit more carefully delineated in terms of what it's appropriate to do with who and why and so on. And I slightly mourn the... Um, the the loss of the shared simple shared humanity so that's a challenge to negotiate because i think all all the staff cardboard citizens want to be close to and 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 you know as as, as friendly as is appropriate to the people we work with but i mean i grew up you know in the early part of cardboard citizen many of my close friends are people who are members of Carpool Citizens and theoretically in a working condition that would now be that would now be not considered appropriate. So there's some challenges there, which is the sort of clash of cultures. And that will be ever present, I guess. And that's just a negotiation and a, a set of decisions. I think there's something about risk taking, um, which goes with that, which is that, you know, we've in the arts, we believe we're risk takers and we, we believe that risk yields results. And I suppose in a, a more litigious social sector, um, more regulated um, risks tend to be analysed to death and usually, therefore, other courses of action taken. I, I mean, I very much hope the company after me will continue to be a risk taking company. The final thing, I suppose, is, you know, one's guess about what results from COVID and uh, the aftermath. And I do think, I mean, you've mentioned the, the cessation of the ban on evictions. I do think there's going to be a flood of evictions. I do think, I'm afraid, um, that the ranks of the homeless will be seriously swelled by that. Uh, I do think the cessation of everyone in could feed disastrously into that. So I am, you know, the continuing challenge of increasing numbers of homeless people and increasingly pinched resources will will be there. One of the things we've already observed over the past decade is that we are the port of call for many people who would have gone early before to sort of more specialized crisis intervention kind of. We 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 find people often in a more critical state, as it were, than they would have done 10 years ago, because so many services have closed down. Yes, yeah, yeah. so that yeah. Your, the, the role might shift towards that kind of crisis management more, perhaps, yeah. Um, so, a, a final question, perhaps. What's, what are your future plans? It sounds like, from what I've read, you're going to be as busy ever, a busier as ever, but yeah, I wondered if you could say a bit about what you're planning to do next before we wrap up. Well, first of all, I must give a large plug for um, a show called The Rough Tough Cream Puff Estate Agency, which is going on in Coventry City of Culture. And I believe if we're broadcasting this on the 10th of October, it will be on that very week. 
which is an incredibly exciting true story. Um, a man called Hethcott Williams set up an estate agency for squatters in the 1970s and thereby housed some 200 homeless people. He and his friends went round at night and broke open squats, put new padlocks on them, took the keys back to the estate agency. Homeless people would turn up and and they would say, where do you fancy living? And so, well, I'd, I'd like to live in Notting Hill. Say, oh, we've got a lovely property there. And they would hand over the keys. And this is a completely true story you may be more familiar of a subsection of that story which also features in the play which is um, they also went on to found a new nation called Frestonia based on some streets around the area one of them Freston Road and this is a wonderful story of playful um, but real activism and we've turned it into a musical with incredible music from one of the signs of Chumbawamba who you probably remember, Boff Wally, and uh, words by Sarah Woods, who's my long-term collaborator, and Hethcott Williams, who sadly died in, in 2017. So that's a pretty exciting show uh, with a local homeless choir participating. I was there with them last night. They're really cool. There's about 20 of them. It's great. They're really up for it. This is another part of our long, uh, long-term residency in Coventry, several parts um, uh, of that. Then in autumn, I will be working on a Radio 4 play, which is the result of a lot of work we've done on late 19th century vagrants. And uh, again, some untold stories, some remarkable untold stories, which I think you've you've seen some of our installments of. We've been uh, working with the historian Nick Krausen at uh, Manchester University, who has uncovered all this amazing material of these untold lives, uh, you know, mainly in the form of court reports um, and asylum reports and so on. But you actually get to hear people's voices, which is remarkable. Beyond that, um, I shall be doing forum theatre projects in lots of different places um, and I will be simply freelancing more. I think I shall be working quite a lot abroad and yes, and still making theatre and um, finding plays and probably still working with a fairly similar constituency because that's where I have felt most at home um, and I have many friends. Uh, one thing we hope to revive that production bystanders next year. We hope to tour that next year if it's at all possible. Um, it may not be possible and that'll be up to the new team uh, at the helm. Um, but I'm certainly not retiring just to be absolutely clear. There's lots to do. I also have the small matter of a book to write, of my own book, um, which I shall be working on next year. Is that about the Joker? That, right. right. That is the art of the Joker. I've always, I've been writing it for about 30 years, but I just never seem to have quite the time to finish it. Now that I'm no longer running an organisation, finally, uh, I will have no excuse. I, will just yeah, have to I know the that. feeling. Yeah, yeah, I'm solidarity sure. with that. Yes, yeah. Okay, well, Adrian, uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today and taking us through the story of cardboard citizens <coughs> and for giving us this kind of compelling sense of the power of theatrical art to build public awareness and understanding uh, about homelessness. So, thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks a lot.
Many thanks to Adrian Jackson and to Peter Jones for putting this podcast conversation together. You can read more about Adrian Jackson's work on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.